Welcome to Unlocking Science, where we look at how to talk about science, particularly how trust in science is affected by social media, cultural traditions, and even our relationship with authority. This four-part series is brought to you by the International Science Council, and I am your host, Nick Ishmael Perkins, a journalist and researcher in the field of communication. In the last episode, we spoke about science and uncertainty as experienced through COVID-19. We saw how uncertainty can impact our willingness to believe science and discuss whether scientific discovery should advocate for specific morals and values. In this episode, we explore how our sense of identity affects our willingness to trust certain sources of information. We'll look at why the authority of traditional gatekeepers of expertise, like science academies, seems to be eroding. Have we misunderstood what social media can do? And what might this have to do with the rise of identity politics? And of course, we will also reflect on what should be done by the science community for all of this. Welcome to Unlocking Science, where today we discuss how to talk about science and identity. Joining us today are two guests whose work has taken their research into the fascinating intersection of philosophy, psychology, science communication, and our social media selves. Let's welcome our guests. First, Dr. Daniel Williams, a research fellow at the University of Cambridge and an associate fellow at the Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence. His work explores the philosophical tradition of man as a rational animal, moving beyond to look at the ways in which man can also be an extraordinarily irrational animal, prone to bias and self-justification. His work has had such an impact on my own thing, and I often feel like a groupie talking to him. Welcome, Dan. Hello. And Dr. Elodie Chabol, a French neuroscience researcher, avid Twitter user, and director of Pint of Science International Festival, who, in her own words, is working to change the perception of science and scientists for the better, one tweet at a time. Elo is a kind of social entrepreneur I like best, bold, playful, and full of charm. Welcome, Elo. Hi. In 2020, some interesting polling data by the firm Datafola came out of Brazil, indicating that 7% of the Brazilian population, approximately 11 million people, believe that the earth is flat compared to about 2% of the UK population at about the same time. This significant number has been attributed to the beliefs of certain resurgent religious groups spread through online video platforms and invitation-only social media groups. Their influence has stretched surprisingly far in a country currently swept up in the politics of a post-truth era. There are also signs that religious fundamentalism is spreading these ideas in various countries. In 2017, the website Jeune Afrique reported that a geology student in Tunisia was intending to submit a PhD defending her work on a flat earth model. So, Dan, what can we learn about social identities and understanding science when we look at the story of flat earthers in Brazil? I think you can learn a number of things. Within these kinds of communities, what you often find is that a belief that is sort of flagrantly at odds with the scientific consensus is functioning as a kind of badge or signal of in-group identity and solidarity, such that these beliefs are not a sort of disinterested appraisal of reality. They're really serving these sort of social and communal purposes for the people that belong to these communities. Um, 
And the, the sort of belief about the shape of the planet, I think, in these cases, even though it can look sort of really bizarre and irrational from outside of the community, is performing this kind of identity-defining role, especially for individuals within these communities who regard themselves as being sort of alienated from or estranged from the scientific mainstream. And Elong, do you have any reflections on this story as well, particularly considering the history of engagement uh, of science with the public? Yes, so I think it it reflects um, how we talk about science. Historically, we've been talking about science the same way to anyone. You know, we haven't really thought about communities and traditions and what people do and what are their interests. So it's kind of logical that they would have those little community spheres that would be hermetical to science. And now science engagement is taking that into account and starting to actually going to communities and really having another way of doing science communication that is more based on maybe having a, a small door Uh, open like tradition, for example, or references that are going to be common to to enter there and then to spread the science there. So it's not just, I'm going to tell you science and you're going to listen. It's going to be like, look, your traditions and your community can actually mix with science. And this is how it goes. I see you nodding, Dan. Do you see this reflected in in progressive examples of science communication? Um, I think so, definitely. I mean, I think one of the things that's become sort of increasingly clear in science communication over the past couple of decades is that the general public is not just a kind of homogeneous blob. It's highly differentiated. You have individuals that belong to very different kinds of communities and different factors are at play in different circumstances when it comes to their scepticism of or distrust of science. And so it's really important, I think, that when you communicate science, you're sensitive to the different communities that you're speaking to and that you recognise the different kinds of factors that might be at play when it comes to scepticism of science. And also, as mentioned, that you don't treat the audience that you're talking to as people who just have some sort of deficit that need to be like hit over the head with facts and evidence, but as people that you need to build trust with and that you need to respect and enter into a genuine dialogue with. You know, and I think actually you're right. What that case study and your reflections on it do very clearly is to point to the limitations of a deficit model of, of, of communication, which as Elo was referring to is a kind of traditionally how we've approached communication of science, which is actually, well, everybody has a huge deficit of knowledge and understanding and a scientist, we're just going to communicate to you and tell you what you don't know. And then job done, away we go. Something else sort of strikes me about that particular case study, and I'd like to hear your reflections on it. We tend to think of social media as a mechanism for amplification for broadcasting. But what we see in that case study with Brazil in particular is that actually a lot of those channels are quite closed, invitation only, very network led. Do you have any reflections on that, Elo? Usually we use social media to broadcast, but it's true also um, that you still are in a bubble in social media because people following you are going to be usually people agreeing with you or liking you. And we often think, you know, we're going to reach everyone with social media, but it's still a bubble. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that they would go to like more closed bubble. We have to realize social media is not always a viral thing that is going to be open to everyone. You need to be sure people 
are going to follow you first and for them to follow you, they have to find something in you. The problem we have with science communication is that science is a bunch of facts, but now it's getting more like an opinion. You know, I think Earth is flat or I think Earth is, is a sphere, actually. And people are going to follow you because they like your opinion. But science is not an opinion. That's the big problem that we have. And they need to realize the difference between opinion and facts. So this is, I think, a fascinating philosophical conundrum. How do you communicate uncertainty to people who actually are used to communicating with people that they share opinions with? One thing I would say is I do think this echo chamber phenomenon, it does exist. I think it definitely exists in some of these sort of fringe subcultures, so flat earth communities and so on. I think it might be a little bit overblown when it comes to people more generally. So it is true that on social media, we do have our own networks and we often filter those networks through agreement. But it's also true that even in people's offline lives, they often interact with like-minded people. But I think you have highlighted something really important, which is when you are on social media, I think it's important that you try to follow, interact with, um, acquire information from a diverse range of sources. Um, and it's easy to sort of lecture other people on the fact that they should be doing that, especially when they're part of groups or coalitions that you disagree with. But it's also important, I think, to reflect on how you operate on social media as an individual. And are you genuinely engaging with and trying to acquire information from a diverse range of sources? It's interesting. I remember Noam Chomsky said, you know, the reality is that nobody wants to come home from work and then feel like they have to do research and a PhD thesis just to figure out what happened in the world that day. And I feel that very strongly. And I think this is a big part of why we're in the situation that we're in, because you think actually there must be a shorthand me just go to a couple of people who I can trust and who see the world like I do. The problem is that that becomes reinforcing even where you have arguments that might be problematic, especially in view of global scientific consensus. I think you've touched on something so important there, which is the degree to which our beliefs about the world inevitably depend upon trust. And I think this is another thing which the science of science communication has had to recognize over recent decades. And it comes back to this sort of deficit model, which was the idea that if you just provide people with information and evidence, and that will bring them around to the scientific consensus, where actually what you really need is for people in society to trust in science, in the scientific process and in scientific institutions. And that means that a significant part of science communication is building that trust and building that trust with a sort of diverse range of people from lots of different communities. And that's sort of one of several reasons why it's completely crucial that science is as inclusive as possible when it comes to people from loads of different political, social, cultural, religious communities in society. One thing that is very important and that we need to think more when we communicate about science is how science is made. The science methods, you know, how you go from a hypothesis to actually a fact that you know is, is true. When you see COVID, science was real time during that time. So basically, we got all the news that was fresh out of the labs. At the moment, it was out of the labs and people were really confused because, you know, it was going a bit that way. And then, oh, sorry, actually, it was going a bit the other way. And people were completely not trusting science because they were thinking scientists don't know what they are talking about so why should we trust them and i think the most important part um, is really to teach people what's the scientific method 
uh, once they know that, they can go in front of every kind of problem with their minds understanding how it works. You know, it's like the, this expression, uh, give a fish to someone and you're going to feed them, but teach them how to fish and you're going to feed them for life. And I think learning to fish would be actually explaining how the scientific method works. I have to say, this is a really interesting point. I think, though, that you have explained it very elegantly. Before we talk about the institutional response, which both of you have started to lean into, I want to go back to something that Dan alluded to, which I think is really, really important. And this is the idea about how people's information-seeking behavior, their relationship to certain institutions is a marker of identity. And it's this idea uh, that's sometimes described as strategic ignorance. Dan, do you want to explain a little bit about what that is and why it's important in the context of communicating science? Yeah, so sometimes people don't know something just because they're lacking information or they made a mistake in their attempt to reason about it. But sometimes people don't know something because in some sense they don't want to know it because it conflicts with, for example, a belief that has an important emotional or social value for them. And I think a really important example of that when it comes to beliefs about issues that um, might be um, things that the scientific process bears on are beliefs that function as identity-defining beliefs, beliefs that function as badges of in-group membership and allegiance. So I think when you find these kinds of subcultures in which individuals have these beliefs that are flatly at odds with the scientific consensus, these beliefs bound up with a very emotionally appealing narrative in which they have sort of seen through the deception and lies and viewed reality for what it really is. And also they're bound up with a sense of community. So you get a sense of social acceptance from belonging to the community that holds these beliefs. And that seems like a kind of atypical example. But actually, I think when it comes to issues that are of more central importance, especially over the next decades and the next century, such as climate change, you see a similar kind of phenomenon. So in many parts of the world, for example, I think a kind of cl climate denialism, an extreme form of scepticism about the scientific consensus on climate change, has functioned as a kind of marker of identity in certain kinds of groups. And that's why, for example, when you look into the data on beliefs about climate change, it's not really predicted by what you would expect, things like scientific literacy, things like your access to information. It's predicted for the most part by political identity. So it's a sort of really important and crucial case where, you know, we need to get the general public on board that climate change is happening. And yet identity, and as you mentioned, a kind of strategic ignorance is getting in the way of that in a way that's really problematic. I think this is an important point because, you know, here we use this case study with flat earthers. But of course, this kind of, I, I, I use strategic ignorance again cautiously, but this idea of communities having shared beliefs, which becomes emotionally or tactically important to them and important to their resilience is actually not as insane as it might first appear. Because I can definitely say as a member of the Black community in the UK, I understand why there is a certain amount of wariness 
with certain institutions relating to science and, and, and medical research. I think it's important to contextualize that this is not an indication of education necessarily, um, but it's really about lived experience and how that can sometimes shape the way that certain institutions are, are regarded. I think that's exactly right. We're all profoundly social animals and given the choice between forming accurate beliefs about the world and belonging to a community and being accepted by that community, um, we will very often opt for the latter. And so when you find these situations in which, for example, with climate denial, with these sort of flat earth subculture in which a belief is performing this kind of emotional and social function and knitting a community together, people will often opt for that rather than evaluating evidence in a way that's sort of dispassionate. Yeah. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about how we respond. And Elo, I know that um, there are some interesting examples of how French science academies have tried to respond to this kind of current global context um, in terms of supporting new ways of outreach, engagement with the publics. Yeah, so it's not just in France, I think um, we see that um, I'm part of the Falling Walls uh, Engage Network, which is a, a network for like all the science engagers in the world. And we see that as people realized we need to have different formats and different communities that we try to to do everything we can to have science presented in a different way than the deficit model with the scientists having to just, you know, explain the science to the people and the public listening. And then that's it. Uh, off we go, you know, creative way, like maybe dancing or art or any kind of thing that would relate to people and help them um, maybe just reach the scientists um, and, and trust them as well. And one thing that we've seen is that grants are asking for scientists now to do science communication. And I think it's very important they start doing it, rewarding scientists doing science communication. It's good because before science communication by scientists was also something they were doing as a hobby. And it, you cannot really go um, do different things if it's a hobby and it's not really counting in your promotion or in your career. Yeah, great. Dan, you mentioned actually the importance of the experience of climate scientists if we're going to be learning about how to adapt our science communication. Do you want to explain a little bit about that? Well, I think as it's become clear that if you want to communicate the science of climate change, you need to make sure that you're sensitive to the kinds of values and ways in which issues are framed within particular political and cultural communities and coalition. So one thing that I think is really important is that you often decouple the specification of the problem from available solutions. So I think if you go to a room of people who are conservative and you say, climate change requires us to end capitalism, they're not going to be particularly receptive to that kind of information. Um, or if you say that it means we need to erode national ties and forms of nationalism, again, they're not going to be particularly receptive to that information. So just being clear when it comes to communicating information to particular audiences, that you need to be doing that in a way that you're not unnecessarily um, assigning sort of social and political meanings to the scientific information, which is likely to make people less receptive to accepting it and taking it on board. Hello, you look like you're about to say something, yes. I think we talk a lot about how we should communicate science to different publics and to different communities, but I feel like we're not listening too much. And that's, I think, a big problem because if we want to adapt the communication, the formats, we need to ask people what would reach them the best. And I think that's something we don't do. We talk about 
you know, about science communication amongst ourselves. And then we try and it doesn't work. And we're quite disappointed, but we don't ask the people we want to reach how to reach them. Actually, that's a, a quick anecdote, a science film festival in Germany. Lots of uh, journalists, uh, filmmakers talking about climate change. And high school students said that if he didn't see a documentary in high school, he wouldn't know about climate change. And everyone was so shocked because they were just saying, but we work so much. We've done so many documentaries. And then he said, yeah, but 45 minutes is too long for me. I don't watch that. And then I asked him, what would you have watched? What is the format that would have reached you? I'm dying to know. What did he say? What format? It just said TikTok. It's true. It's the things that obviously TikTok, if you want to reach uh, young uh, or even kids, it's, it's going to be on TikTok. Do you think that part of the problem is the science community not taking the science of science communication seriously enough? Yeah, I think so. And also, I feel like talking about identity and echo chambers, we are talking about it amongst ourselves. We need to reach them to see the yeah science of science communication, to see more data. Dan, did you have anything you're going to say on that? I mean, I would just echo the point about the fact that many scientists aren't really incentivized to engage in science communication in a serious way. So they can't really be blamed if their science communication is not completely aligned with up-to-date scientific research on science communication. So I think um, even there, what's really important is changing the kinds of professional incentives people have, making science communication and indeed creating more jobs for people who are just solely concerned with science communication. Okay, now we're coming to the end of the episode and this means that we get to the bit where we have our little summary. It is the section we call, so just answer the question. You have 60 seconds. Here you summarize your key points, any takeaways you'd like us to leave us with. Hello, I just answered the question. How do we talk about science and identity? We have to think about the general public, as Dan said, and as I usually say as well, not like a big blog blob of people as different communities and as like how can we reach them differently so different people different communities so i think that's very important and also teach them how science is done brilliant and dan just answer the question how do we talk about science and identity yeah so i would say people decide which people and which institutions they're going to trust at least partly based on whether they think they share their values and whether they think they have their interests at heart And a significant part of that is whether they think they belong to the kinds of communities that they belong to and identify with. And so that's one of several reasons why it's important to make science as inclusive as possible, people from a wide range of different communities. And I would also say in some contexts, you find these sort of identity groups organized around beliefs that are explicitly at odds with the scientific consensus, um, the sort of flat earth communities being a paradigm example of that. And when that happens, I think it's really important not to sort of stigmatize and demonize individuals in those communities because it often just pushes them further in. And more generally, I think it's important to ask why there are people in society who feel like they're so sort of estranged from or alienated from the scientific process that the only way they can form a sort of community is around these anti-scientific beliefs. Thank you. Thank you both for what is an informative and I think critical discussion at this point in not only the pandemic and not only in the climate emergency, but also I would say in the history of science. Thank you, Elo. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, please look out for our next episode, How to Talk About Science and Distrust, where we look at the various ways that distrust is expressed and what that says about solutions to engaging a weary public. 
To listen to previous episodes and to learn more about the Unlocking Science series, please visit unlockingscienceseries.com. And if you're in the UK, you can go to the International Science Council website, council.science. This podcast was produced for the International Science Council by BBC Storyworks Commercial Productions. Mm-hmm.